pray as we stand together. Father God, we pray for what we have just sung. We pray for reverence and awe before your word as your voice deserves. We thank you that you speak a word that cannot be chained. We thank you that you speak a word that will search us out now and we pray that you will do that. We pray that you will work amazing change in each one of us. We pray that as you speak to us that you would give us soft hearts before you, hearts desiring to see you change us as you deserve and as we so desperately need. And so, we, Father, we pray that you will do that for us tonight. And we pray it in your name. Amen. Well, please take a seat. Well, over the course of this month, as I said before, we as a church family are recommitting ourselves, really, uh, to be a people who are not only hearers of God's word, but doers. If there was a memory verse, I remember when I was in... uh, In uh, kids' church and even youth group, uh, I I often had memory verses. I've got out of the habit of them now. But if there was a memory verse for us as a church family over the next month, this would be it. James 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Such a wonderful verse because for us, like any Christian group, there is a real danger of doing just that, of kidding ourselves because we hear God's word so often. We hear him speak to us, but we never allow it to transform us or rarely. We are those who know the gospel, but we don't end up living the gospel. And it's no small problem, is it? We are blessed with a rich supply of God's word here. If you come to this church regularly and if you're in a small group and if you're in the habit of personal devotions over the course of the next 12 months, God will speak to you directly for over 450,000 minutes. That's a lot, isn't it? He's going to speak to you a lot this year. Think of all the things your God will say to you over that time. All the words he will speak. He will speak, the Bible says, wonderful things to you. Incredible things. Just last week he said this to us in 1 John 3 verse 1. He said, How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. He's going to say many other wonderful things in the days and months that follow. But as we saw last week, sometimes the the wonderful things that God says to us stay at the level of wonder. They never touch down to earth. They never appear in our flesh And we can deceive ourselves into thinking that these big realities that God speaks into our lives are unconnected from our normal life, from Monday morning or Wednesday afternoon. And so we're looking together at 1 John over these weeks in the evening in September because he is writing to counter just this sort of thinking. And as he does, I hope he's going to help us reconnect these wonderful things that God will speak to us to the life that's meant to follow from them. So that when he speaks this year that we're not merely listening but doing. We're listening, expecting him to change us, to be transformed, not just informed. So that's us for the next four weeks. We saw last week how his word will call on us to change when it comes to how we deal with sin. And we're going to see another aspect of our lives that he will call for change in tonight as we turn to 1 John. And it's worth doing that now. 1 John 4 is where we're going to be tonight. It's page 1227 of the Church Bibles. 1227.
And as you're turning to 1 John 4, uh, let me take a step back for a minute, back to first principles. God is going to speak to us tonight. He's already done it as we heard his word and he'll do it as we open the Bible together now. And the Bible tells us that whenever he speaks, he achieves his purpose for speaking. Never fails to. So let me ask you this, why do you think he's going to speak to us tonight? Why does God speak to you? After all, he is in heaven and you are on earth. Why would he speak to you? He is from everlasting to everlasting and you, well, you're from the 20th century to the 21st. He rules life and breath and everything else and you, well, I don't know about you, but I don't particularly rule anything. Why does he speak to me? Why does he speak to you? Well, here's why. He wants you to know him. Not just know about him, he wants you to know him. He speaks, uh, the Bible tells us, as a man does to his friend because that's how he sees you. He speaks because he's seeking relationship. And so he speaks that you might know him. You know that feeling of uh, speaking to someone perhaps for the first time, there's lots of small groups that are going to start in this next week and there's going to be that awkward moment as you wander into a, a new lounge room perhaps that you've never been to before and you look around and there are these people that perhaps you don't even know and and you're going to start speaking to each other and every word that you hear from someone else is going to be a word that brings you closer to them, a word that relates you. I've had that same experience uh, myself uh, in these last few weeks. I've I've got myself a new prayer partner, somebody keep me accountable and encourage me as a Christian. We've only met a couple of times and both times it's been amazing as we start to discover each other's lives and who we are. When God speaks, he speaks that way with a view to relationship. Every time you open his word, he is revealing himself to you. And as he speaks to us, who is it that we come to know? Well, the more he speaks to you, the the more we get to know him, one refrain keeps sounding from his voice. It's impossible to miss because he speaks it on every page of this book. When you get to know him, the inescapable conclusion that one keeps being drawn to is the three words you see at the end of 1 John 4 verse 8. Have a look at them. God is love. God is love. Not just God loves or he knows about love, God is love. Reading God's word is like being a child on an adventure in some huge old house and you're racing around all the different rooms and God keeps opening the doors and showing you new aspects of himself. And every time you open a new door to discover more about God, you keep finding yourself in the same place. And we're there again tonight. God is love. Here is the heart of things. The very throne room of God's character. It's the sort of place that when you realise that you've stumbled in there again, you take off your shoes and you bow down low and you get very quiet. Because what you're about to hear is almost too wonderful to believe and yet it is true. The God who is your Father is love. Again, John isn't saying this as if it's just some sort of character trait of God, as if God's been asked in an interview, what are your strengths, God? And he said, well, I'm quite loving. No, it's much bigger than that. It's his very essence, who he is in and of himself. He is love. God who speaks to us in his word is Trinity. Father, Son and Spirit. 
And if you want to know anything about the God who speaks to you and his nature, here is where you need to begin. This is who he is, Trinity. Three persons who love each other. God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit. Each in genuine relationship with the other, each loving the other, each utterly committed to the good of the other. They love, he loves, God is love. And God's great desire is that you know this is who he is. That we may know in the words of verse 7 that love, all love, comes from God. It's amazing, isn't it? Love, the very thing that our world is forever talking about, that's the thing that's launched thousands upon thousands of songs and movies and poems and letters. The great treasure of the human experience, the thing that we are wired up to long for, God is love. He doesn't just know what it is, he doesn't just possess it, he is love. This is how John Piper put it, he said, Love is from God the way heat is from a fire or light from the sun. It is from him. It can't be earned by by us, we don't deserve it. He loves, irrespective of who we are, he loves because of who he is. And if you want to see the ultimate demonstration that God is love, if you want to see how he has made that very clear to us, not just in his word but in his flesh, have a look at verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Who God is, love, Father, Son and Spirit, shows itself in how he lives among us. It's unveiled, if you like, before us in many ways, isn't it? In in the life we experience, in the breath that we breathe, in in, in all the, the wonderful things of this world. But ultimately, his greatest showing, his greatest unveiling of his love is in the unsolicited, undeserved, unexpected sending of his son to those who don't love him, to those who do not want to love him, his enemies. All the initiative is his. And there's no limit to his expression, is there? Remember who God is, Father, Son, Spirit. There's only one Son. And yet he gets up from his seat in heaven with his Father and with the Spirit and he freely goes. His Father sends him The Spirit goes with him. And do you see what 4 verse 10? As an atoning sacrifice for our sin. He comes because rightfully God is angry with me. Because of my sin. Because he is a just and holy and good God and I am not any of those things. He comes because I disregard the love he has. I belittle it. I I doubt it. I ignore it. I reject it. Despite how wonderful he is to me, despite his goodness towards me, I spurn it all in the foolish delusion that I don't need or want his love. And his response? What else could it be when you realise who he is? I mean, if you were only a God of wrath or justice, then I and you with me, we'd be done for, wouldn't we? But God is love. And so he sends his son to be my sacrifice before I even know I need one, before I even know I want to have one. 
to bear the wrath that I should carry, to remove the wrath that should remain squarely on my shoulders. And so John says in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, he says, that is love. In fact, it's the only way we'll ever know what love is. We won't know it from our songs. We won't learn it from the movies. We won't even know it in the best experiences of love we have. This is love. Love comes from God. And do you see why in chapter 4, verse 9, that his love expressed in Jesus' death has come? Do you see why he's done that? It has a very clear purpose. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now follow the logic with me. God speaks to us through his word and then ultimately through Jesus, the word made flesh. Why? That we may know him, yes, but even that has a purpose. Verse 9, that you may live through him. God speaks to transform the way we live. John writes this letter to us so that we can be confident of who we are as Christians. As we saw last week, as we can be confident that we are children of God. When you became a Christian, when you came to Jesus in repentance and faith, new birth happened. He took your dead and selfish heart and natures and he implanted into you new life and new love, his love. You are his child, his nature is in you. I'm going to take that in for a moment because it blew me away again this week. God is love. You want to know what to expect from God? Well, in the same way you expect light from the sun or heat from a fire, expect love from God. It's who he is. But you're his child. His seed is in you. His nature is in you. Love is in you. It's now who you are. God's very nature is in you. What should we expect from a Christian? A Christian loves. You are a chip off the old block. That's why he sent his son. It's why he speaks to you tonight. He speaks that you may know him. He speaks that you may live like him because you're his child. You see it there. John makes it clear for us in verse 11. He says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now I reckon this is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible and I must confess that for the majority of my Christian life I think I've misunderstood it. If we we were to take verse 11 out of the context of the sort of things that we've been thinking about tonight, this is what it sounds like John is saying. If God loved us this way, this amazing way in sending his son, then you owe it to him to do the same. You ought to do it too. Or put it another way, perhaps a bit more positively, God's love is so big, it's like an inspirational poster that you put on the wall and it should inspire you to love just like him. It's a bit like that moment when uh, Wimbledon rolls around each year and we watch Wimbledon by about halfway through, you're so inspired by it all, you you drag the tennis racket back out of the cupboard and you dust it off and you think, yeah, I'm going to take up tennis again. And you do it for a few weeks before you realise, actually, there was a reason I gave up tennis. I reckon we can easily uh, fall into that trap when it comes to what our motivation is here. If you keep verse 11 in context of the wonderful things he's been telling us about God's nature, about who God has made us as his children, with this new nature in us, then verse 11 says something incredibly powerful. If God so loved you, 
that you became his children, then you ought to love. But it's not an ought in a sense of obligation or or just being inspired. It's an ought in terms of who you now are. We love because we're his children. A Christian ought to love in the same way a fish ought to swim. It's what we do. God speaks to us that we may know him and in knowing him become his children and in becoming his children live like our father. That the scriptures tell me God is love is not meant to inform me or even just excite me or even delight me. It's meant to change me through and through because that's who I am now. And so again, if you want to know if you're being transformed by God's word, verse 11 says this is how it's going to show itself. It will show itself in the way you love one another. So what will that look like amongst us here? Well, I think it's going to look very new, isn't it? Because it's a whole new nature we've been given. We go from those who who are ultimately, when it comes to our love, self-focused. A love that uh, 1 John 2 and verse 15 describes like this. This This is the love that we did have in us. A love of the cravings of the sinful nature, a love of the lust of the eyes, the things that we can see, the things that we want, a love of what I have and what I do, a love of things that are ultimately passing away. That's my old nature. The old nature that has been changed by God's love, by his son's mighty death and resurrection. Instead he has put his spirit in me, a spirit whose love is very different to mine. He loves the other not self. And so he places in me a whole new object to love and they are all around you. So if God's love is in you, what's it going to look like in this place, in this church family? Well, Let me uh, paint you three pictures of God's love at work in us. Three pictures from 1 John. Firstly, it's going to mean this. If God's love is in you, it will cause you to promote the good of others. If God's love is in you, it will cause you to promote the good of others. When we love as God does, and remember, have a look at verse 9. See how God loves. See how he showed it in sending his son for what purpose that we might live through him. When we love like that, it's going to mean that here amongst one another, we are increasingly committed to seeing others live through him. A bit like last week, it means that when you come through these doors of a Sunday, you come with a job, promoting life in others. You come amidst the people just like yourselves who are battling with their old natures and you come here to see that that nature is put to death in them and you. To encourage them to live uh, no longer through the things that they have and do but through the God who has saved them. To encourage them no longer to live for the things that they can lust after with their eyes and the cravings of the sinful flesh but to live for him. If God's word is transforming you, then you will love one another and firstly that's going to mean that when you come here, you will come with a growing love for others' livelihood. You will come here longing to see a brother or sister, the one who is sitting beside you right now, come more and more to life as God's child. And a good night for you will be when you come home and you will have seen a moment like that. You will have seen them come more to life. As we saw last week with sin and we see this week with our love for one another, when God's word transforms us and not just informs us, then our Christian life becomes just that, a life. 
filled with doing, not just knowing. So there's the first picture. It will cause us to promote the good of others. But here's the second picture. God's love in you will cause you to rejoice in the good of others. Now this one's a bit different, but uh, so important, I reckon. Have a look back in chapter 3, verse 11. John says this, This is the message that you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. And anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. In one sense it's a strange little passage, isn't it? Perhaps John is writing a letter because he's fearful that the churches he writes to that there's a real chance that there's going to be a spate of murders just around the corner. And so he's warning them just to remind them, remember, don't kill each other. I suspect not. I'm not fearful of that here either. But why does he bring up Cain, the one who killed his brother Abel? Well, have a look at, at verse 12. See the question John asks. Why did Cain murder him? The answer is closer to us than we think. There is something in Cain's motives that that John wants us to see here because he thinks it's going to affect the way we love each other. You see, Cain didn't just kill his brother uh, out of nothing. He killed him firstly because he hated him. He resented him. His brother's deeds were good and acknowledged and his weren't. Standing next to his brother, he came up short. You ever felt that way here? Abel's goodness made Cain feel guilty. Instead of dealing with his lack, he just gets rid of Abel. Problem solved. There's a real danger, I think, for us here, a real blockage that will stop us loving one another. Yes, God's nature is in us, but so is human nature. And we humans hate to be shown up. Hate falling short in some way. We, we train our children really from, from day one to know that they are special, important, gifted. We train them to hate being bettered. And it's not a lesson we forget in adulthood. In fact, we get better at it. And so we can so easily resent another Christian when our own inadequacies are exposed when we stand next to them. It's hard being around able types, isn't it? You see it in so many ways. You might see it as a family is being interviewed in an all-age service and they're talking about their prayer life as a family and you hear them speak and you think, man, they've got their act together. They're like some super family. I'm surprised they don't come in here wearing capes. (laughs) But rather than rejoice in them, we can all too easily resent them or the attention that they're getting. It's that family again. Or you avoid them. Or you find some fault that will bring you back on par with them. Or it might happen as you start a new small group and and over the first few months it becomes painfully obvious that everyone else knows their Bible better than you. They've all got wise answers to the discussion questions you're talking about and they know it all and you hate it. They're so clever and smug and friendly. (laughs) So you stop going. 
Or you've got a colleague at work, a Christian brother who is just brilliant at having gospel conversations with other workmates and he's, he's bringing half the department to the pub quiz and he's always asking you how you're going and he's keen to meet up for lunch and to plot together and pray together about how you're going to win the office for Christ. And you just grow resentful of his relentless enthusiasm and you excuse yourself and end up deriding him as a lazy worker. Or you find that over time your children have wandered from the faith and your friends, your peers, your contemporaries, well, their children are still standing firm and so you just find excuses not to meet them socially anymore and you try to avoid their questions. We hate being shown up and we find it so easy to compensate. No, we don't kill our brother, we just avoid him or nullify the goodness in him. We, we, we find a fault We do anything to protect ourselves, protect ourselves from the good that he may bring to us. But John says love, God's love in us, doesn't act that way. The love we ought to show rejoices in the good of others. And so if God's love is transforming you as he speaks to you, if he's changing your nature, then you will overcome the fear of being bettered. If you have a brother who excels in a grace of God, you'll rejoice in their progress. And you want to get close enough for hoping that you might learn something. And you'll let them know that they encourage you. Imagine how transformed our church family would be if we listened to God on this. We'd be each other's cheer squad. We'd hear of another's growth and we'd be inspired by it, encouraged by it. Can you imagine that? Well, one final picture of what God's love will mean amongst us. If God's love is in you, it will cause you to meet the needs of others. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. There's so much here in these three verses, so much worthy of our careful reflection. And let me encourage you, most of the small groups will be looking at this in, in two weeks' time. This is a good place to stop and dwell and spend a good amount of time as a group, fleshing out the huge implications that are here. But let me fire off three quick things to get you started and to follow us home. What's God's love in us going to look like? Firstly, verse 18, God's love in us will show up in our flesh, in our deeds. Love is practical. Talk is good. But where deeds are needed, we won't stop at words, John says. Christians don't just have good intentions. They don't just talk good intentions. They follow them through. If we fail to act, all the rhetoric in the world means nothing. Love involves deeds. And secondly, you see what sort of deeds it involves. Verse 16, costly deeds. We ought to be those who lay down our lives for one another. Jesus, seeing the cross before him freely, out of love, laid down his life. And that's you. His nature is pulsing through your newborn veins. We love like him. And so if God's love is transforming you, as he speaks to you, it will grow in you an ever-increasing desire to die to self that others might live. The seed, the spirit in you 
has been put in you as a spirit of sacrifice. There's nothing sentimental about that sacrificial love that he's put in you. It's very practical, isn't it? You want to see how practical? Well, here's the third thing. See verse 17. What sort of cost will our love pay? Well, it's going to involve your stuff, your material, your possessions. Remember, God is transforming you. He has given you a new love, no longer for what you have and do, but a love for those around you. And so you'll gladly lose your stuff for them. And so you'll know God's word is transforming you if the vice-like grip you have on your material possessions is weakening and your impulse to give yourself and what you have and do for others is strengthening. 450,000 minutes. That's how much he may speak to you this year. He speaks that you may know him. He is love. He wants you to know him because he lives in you. And so you ought to live like him and he is love. And so 2009, let us together be about transformation, not information. 450,000 minutes, we could waste every single one of them. If all we hope to hear is information for our minds and hearts, but 450,000 minutes that could well bring transformation, even revolution in the way we love one another. And may it be so. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you speak. Uh, We thank you that as you speak we get to know you. And we thank you that as you speak we get to know ourselves as your children. Father, help us to be those who don't just know it but live it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We get to finish with this wonderful song, uh, Rejoicing in What We Have Thought.